This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, and welcome to Practicing Pediatrics. In this series, we'll be showcasing the specialist work of the clinical staff here at Great Ormond Street Hospital. There are over 60 different clinical specialties at Gosh, providing tertiary and quaternary level care for many rare conditions. So if you are hoping to learn a little bit more about a unique condition or intervention, or just find out more about the advances at GOSH, this may be the series for you. I'm Dr. Sarah Ahmed, a paediatric registrar and the current Digital Learning Education Fellow here at Great Ormond Street. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. James Davidson, a friend of the show and a consultant in paediatric metabolic medicine here at GOSH. We're going to be talking about Pompe disease. We're going to talk about the etiology, presentation, investigation, diagnosis, and management. James, thank you so much for coming back on the show today. It's good to be here. Thank you. So I wanted to start the way we start all of these podcasts by asking you, what would you like people to get out of listening to this podcast? I think the focus for this podcast is around pompa disease, and this is a rare disorder, but I think it would be really good that any paediatrician is aware of this condition because it's a, a treatable disorder that we want to be making the diagnosis of and not, not missing it. So I think that's the, the key thing to have that in our differential diagnosis. Like you said, it is quite a rare disorder, but hopefully this can give people a really nice overview of it. So let's start right at the very beginning, Pompey disease. What is it? Do you have a definition and where does that name come from as well? Yeah, so it's an interesting history where it comes from, um, and actually that helps us understand what the condition is all about. So Pompe disease is named after um, Dr. Johannes Pompe, who was the first person who described it. Um, he, in the early 1900s, identified a, a, an infant who died of suspected pneumonia, but at post-mortem, he discovered that they had a massive heart, so they had a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And, and when they did the pathology of the heart, he noted that there was loads of glycogen in the cardiac muscle cells. Um, and that was really the first clue, the first description of this disorder. It's a glycogen storage disorder because you get a, an over accumulation of glycogen in, in muscle cells, which impairs the function. So that was really the first description of the disorder. Now we know a lot more about it. So it's a, a glycogen storage disorder, and it's also under the category of the lysosomal storage disorders. And we'll perhaps talk a bit about that as we, as we go through. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the pathophysiology. What causes Pompe disease? Yeah, so as we've said, the problem that emerges is that you get a, a buildup or a storage of glycogen, particularly in the muscle cells. So within muscles, you need glycogen as a storage form of glucose that's there really to provide an immediate source of fuel for muscles when they're contracting and needing energy. You have a housekeeping system within the muscle cells, though, to make sure that you don't get too much glycogen building up. And that housekeeping system is the, the lysosome, which is a bit like the waste recycling center in the cells. And inside the lysosome, there are several different enzymes that have different functions, but which break down large macromolecules. And there's one enzyme in particular in the lysosome, and the function of that is to break down excessive glycogen. And Pompe disease occurs when that enzyme, the alpha-glucosidase, is not working. And so you get a buildup of glycogen first in the lysosome, and then it spills over into the cytosol and causes progressive damage to the muscle cells. So Pompe disease is caused because you're missing that specific 
um, alpha-glucosidase enzyme in the lysosome, and that leads on to the, the storage of glycogen, and that causes the, the problems. And so, yeah, so that it's classified both as a glycogen storage disorder because you've got glycogen building up, but also it is one of the lysosomal storage disorders because it's that, that enzyme that's missing specifically in the lysosome. And can it affect any muscle? So yes, we see in, and there are different forms of pompa disease, but the, the, the disorder, it can present uh, and affect cardiac muscle, particularly in the infantile severe form of the disorder. But it also affects the skeletal muscles, so the musculature of the arms and the legs. It will also have an impact on respiratory muscles, so diaphragm and the intercostal muscles, as well as having an impact on, on swallow function as well. So cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle in various places, and also smooth muscle can be affected. And so for some of the patients, we, we're seeing that there are also some bladder and bowel issues that can be emerging because smooth muscle is affected. And also the, the muscles within the small blood vessels as well. So there are lots of different areas where it can have an impact. Before we go on and talk about how it presents, I know we've already started mentioning it, but I just wanted to ask about how it's inherited. Am I right in thinking it's a genetic disorder? That's correct. So the, the enzyme that we've said is missing in the disorder, that's encoded by a specific gene, the GAA gene. As with most of the metabolic disorders, it's inherited in an autosomal recessive fashion. So both copies of the GAA gene have to be affected. So it's a, an autosomal recessive disorder, yeah. And so, and you've already mentioned this, but I'm guessing because it's autosomal recessive, it's quite rare as a condition? Yeah, it is. It's rare. The, the epidemiology is a little bit hard to give an absolute figure on, mm. but we think for the severe infantile form, the incidence is about one in a hundred thousand. Some of the later onset forms are more common, maybe one in 50,000. But yes, it is by any accounts a, a rare disorder. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking a little bit about those different types. How does it present? And is there like a certain age range of children that it affects? Yeah. So there are, as we've said, there's a spectrum of severity, which relates to how, how much enzyme, or if you've got any of that enzyme that is still functioning. So if you've got zero enzyme, so there's no function at all, that's going to lead to the more rapid accumulation of glycogen. And so that will present at a much earlier age. So that group are the ones, the children who will have the infantile onset. Pompe disease, um, they um, will usually be presenting with clinical problems in the first few months of life. Um, and uh, by definition, to be in that category, they, they will have presented by 12 months of life at the, at the latest. Um, and that group also have a very significant cardiac involvement. So the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that was the, the first description when that, the disorder was first identified. So the most severe form of the infantile onset Pompe disease group presenting less than one year of age with a combination of um, hypotonia, but also the cardiac involvement as well. There are then the later onset forms of Pompe disease, which by definition is when it's presented after one year of age and, and without the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Now we see that is a very broad spectrum within itself. So some are presenting during childhood. Um, but also there is the adult onset form of that late onset disorder. So some patients may not present until later in adulthood and 
at the mildest end of the spectrum, some people are not actually presenting with symptoms until they're in their 50s or 60s or even later. So there is a really broad spectrum of um, age ranges that we see. But the big two categories, infantile onset, less than one year with the heart involvement, late onset, after one year of age, without the heart involvement. And so when these children present, do they present with symptoms, signs and symptoms of heart failure? And then that makes you think that this might be Pompe disease or are there other signs and symptoms that they present with? Yeah, so there's a range of symptoms that, that can be the initial presenting feature. Um, and if we think about the infantile onset Pompe disease group, those infants usually have a combination of um, hypotonia. So there mm. may be delay in their developmental milestones. They may be noted to be what we perhaps term a floppy baby who's got significant hypotonia and that can then lead on to swallow feeding issues so they may also have evidence of failure to thrive respiratory problems as well so because of the weakness of the respiratory system and also as you said they may also present with features of heart failure due to mm. the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and certainly the combination of a hypotonic floppy baby who's been noted to have a cardiac a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, really that is a, a red flag combination of symptoms that should make us think about um, Pompe disease. So yeah, so they can present with feeding issues, respiratory issues, heart issues, all that skeletal hypotonia. And then if you have a child that you suspect has got Pompe disease, you talked about those kind of red flag symptoms coming together. What are the investigations that you would do to go on to make that diagnosis? Yeah, so you, they may well have had a range of general tests. They may have had a chest x-ray that might have shown a big heart. If you've detected concerns around heart failure, then ECG would be undertaken in an echocardiogram. ECG would often show, again, evidence of hypertrophic changes. So there'll be very large QRS complexes. Mm -hmm. And there are some other changes that might be noted on the ECG. And then the echocardiogram and the, the review with the cardiology team would identify usually a very significant hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, later on, if the disease progresses, there, there can be some dilatation of swell, but certainly to start with, there's gross thickening of the heart muscle. And then in terms of other investigations, blood tests that would have been done, a CK creating kinase will be elevated due to the muscle disease. You also can see that the liver enzymes, ALT and AST may be elevated. And we think that's because that's coming from muscle rather than the liver. But one route into a diagnosis, particularly for some of the older children who are less symptomatic, can be that they've had a, an incidental finding of a high CK or an ALT, for example, if they've had routine blood tests in the context of a, an illness. So those are non-specific things. But then if we're wanting to think particularly about the diagnostics, if we think we want to look for Pompe in particular, then what we need to do is to, to be able to measure that enzyme. So we said that the mm. condition is due to the missing enzyme. And so there are ways to measure the enzyme activity to, to understand whether that's low. And there is a, a blood spot test that can be easily done to measure the enzyme activity in a dry blood spot sample. It can also be done on blood measuring the white cell enzyme activity. And then if you find that that is showing that there is an enzyme deficiency, other tests that you could also do, there's a biomarker to measure the glycogen in the urine. So urine tetrasaccharides can be a, an accompanying feature. And then also a blood film looking specifically for vacuolated lymphocytes can be undertaken. So that's another supportive piece of information. And then really the final 
part of the diagnostic jigsaw would be to do the molecular genetics. So mm -hmm. DNA sample to look particularly for the, the mutations within the GAA gene. Out of all of those tests, really the, the, the most rapid one and the one you need to do to get the diagnosis is that enzyme test and the dry mm -hmm. blood spot test is the, is the easiest way to, to do that. So if you've got a baby or an infant that you think could have Pompeii disease, getting that dry blood spot test for the enzyme activity is, is important. Telling the lab that's what you think might be going on as well. And that can usually done within um, a couple of days to get a, a result back. I was going to ask about differential diagnoses. Are there any other conditions that kind of mimic the symptoms of Pompeii? Because actually, now that we've spoken through it, although this, the presenting symptoms can be kind of nonspecific, it's more that constellation of symptoms that does lead you towards the idea that it's Pompeii disease. Yeah, certainly if you've got, as we've said, hypotonic infants with a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Pompeii is going to be at the top of the differential. Mm -hmm. But then there are other metabolic conditions that can look a bit like that. So we would be thinking about mitochondrial disorders, which mm -hmm. can also cause heart problems and, and hypotonia. Um, there are some other rare storage disorders that we'd be thinking about um, as well. Obviously, if you've got a, an infant who is a hypotonic floppy infants, um, there's a big differential diagnosis for, for an infant who is in that category um, that you'd be working through thinking about, is there a, a muscle disorder? Is there a peripheral neuropathy or a central brain um, aspect or a, an endocrine cause, for example? But again, as you said, if you've got the combination of hypotonia with the heart involvement, then that really that combination starts to lift Pompe's disease up to the top of the mm -hmm. differential diagnosis. Yeah, and not to share out our own episodes, but we do have an episode coming up about the approach to the floppy baby. So do keep an ear out for that. So going on to think about management, I think when we've spoken about other metabolic diseases in the past, we've spoken about these children acutely decompensating and having to be ma managed acutely. Does that happen in Pompe disease or is it more of like a chronic presentation? Yeah, so this is not a metabolic disorder where you're going to see the sort of biochemical derangements that you might see in other conditions. So they're, they're not at risk, particularly of hypoglycemia or high ammonia or, or any of those sorts of mm. issues. Um, so we're not in the same way worried about an acute metabolic decompensation. However, an infant who is being diagnosed with Pompe disease, particularly if we haven't started any treatment, can be really very unwell. And with the heart failure progressing swallow difficulties, they can be in a situation where they're needing acute um, supportive management and some at presentation may be needing ITU or, or HDU level care because of the combination of cardiorespiratory um, support that they're needing. Yeah, of course. And then what are the specific treatments that you use in Pompeii? So the, the treatment approach to an infant with Pompeii to start with would be aiming to stabilize their condition. They mm. may be needing some respiratory support due to the respiratory failure. So if they're needing oxygen, if they may need some non-invasive support for respiratory, they may be needing some general management of the heart failure as well. And we would be doing that in conjunction with the, the cardiology team. Mm. They would be needing feeding support uh, because of the swallow difficulties. So many of them will need nasogastric feeding to start off with to support feeding. And if they've got an infection, obviously we'd be managing that as well, because that can precipitate and lead on to the um, presentation. So all of those things are important in terms of getting the supportive management in place. When we then think about specific 
disease modifying treatments. And we do have um, the ability to, to treat Pompe disease with an enzyme replacement therapy. So we've said that the, the condition is due to the missing enzyme or the absent en enzyme activity. And enzyme replacement therapy that we have available is an intravenous um, infusion that's given on a regular basis, which is a form of that missing enzyme, which is able to be given intravenously, circulates around the body, taken up into the muscle cells and, and transported into the lysosomes where it can then start to clear some of the, the stored glycogen and improve the outcome. Um, and we've got that, and that's been available for a number of years now. And really it's a, a treatment that um, has a very big impact on the outcome for Pompe disease, particularly for infantile onset Pompe disease. We haven't really talked much about the prognosis of the condition in terms of the natural history, but if you have an infant who's got the severe infantile onset Pompe disease uh, without the use of um, enzyme replacement therapy, the natural history would be that none of those infants would be expected to survive beyond 14 months because of the progressive nature of the cardiorespiratory failure. So it's a very severe, really significantly life-limiting disorder. With enzyme replacement therapy, um, infants who are treated with that can then have a much longer survival. And we've actually now in the stage of transitioning some patients who were treated as infants who are now moving up to the adult clinics. So it's really changed the the outcome in terms of the long-term survival, but the, the effectiveness of the treatment really depends on how early we can get it started. Um, and we know that there can be other ongoing complications of the disorder, even when we've got enzyme replacement therapy being given. What are those other complications? So as we've said, the, the disorder affects any of the muscle groups around the body, all of those mm. different types of muscle. The, the heart responds really well to the treatment. And so for the majority of infants with infantile onset Pompe disease, we would expect the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to improve and for them to have generally normal cardiac function in the long term. We need to monitor and check that they don't develop arrhythmias and other issues longer term, but the heart really responds well. The, the skeletal muscle is less well treated by the enzyme. And so the, one of the long-term problems is that they can have progressive issues with the myopathy that will impact on their ability to walk um, and their motor function. And, and there's a range of, of outcomes. Some may maintain mobility. Some may require some support for, for walking, maybe using wheelchairs, for example. But there are others who, despite that treatment, have really significantly progressive myopathy and so are, uh, are very much uh, limited and, and fully dependent on others for, for mobility. So there is a broad range of that. So the heart, the mobility, the respiratory side, again, even with the enzyme treatment, many of the infants will go on to need um, long-term non-invasive respiratory support. So many of them might be on nocturnal BiPAP, for example. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of feeding support, many of the, the children will be needing enteral feed support with a gastrostomy um, to support feeding longer term. So yeah, there are a, a wide range of, of those sorts of issues. and also. We are seeing in some of the long-term survivors, so those who we've treated from infancy um, and who are now getting up into the, the adult areas, that there are other emerging new features of the disorder that we're, we're only starting to learn about. And we, we mentioned about, for example, the smooth muscle effect in the small blood vessels. Um, and so we're having to learn about the risks of aneurysms in other areas as well. And so thinking about all those different systems that are affected, 
I'm guessing it's quite an MDT approach to management and you have lots of different specialties and professionals working together with these families and their the kids. Yeah, certainly the, the MDT approach to the management of these children is really important and they need input from a large range of uh, people really having the, the child at the center and looking at what their needs are, but they would have input from the, from the metabolic team in terms of that enzyme replacement therapy, but needing input, particularly from physiotherapy, um, OT supporting the motor function from speech and language teams, looking at their swallow function and also speech because the musculature of the palate can be affected so they can have some speech quality issues they'll need education support input from the respiratory colleagues input from neuromuscular team because of the long-term risks of muscle weakness scoliosis Mm. and so on so really having that broad range of people around them is important i think it's also important to say that it's not a disorder that primarily affects the the central nervous systems we would expect these young people to have on the whole, normal cognitive function. And so it's even more so than for some other disorders, it's really important that they have very good input from education and psychology, helping to support them in in coping with this long-term chronic condition. I was just thinking about what you said about you're transitioning these kids and they're going on and you're seeing this kind of, some of them are getting aneurysms. Other symptoms are kind of revealing themselves as they get older. Is that because treatments have changed recently you weren't getting as many children transitioning before and now that they're living longer you're we're being more aware of the the complications as they get older yeah that's right i think some of the long-term complications and we're we're seeing because the treatments are able to help these infants to grow up and to survive Mm. into an older age so we're starting to see new aspects of the disorder that we wouldn't have seen before we focused our discussion mostly around the infantile onset um, group. We know that for older children or those with the late onset Pompe disease, that they have other issues that, that can emerge. But I think, as you said, the treatment is now changing the dynamic of the disorder. It's changed, yeah. changed it from a, in terms of the infantile form, changed it from being a universally fatal disorder in mm. early infancy to a, a long-term chronic disorder. And so there are those other aspects of the, the condition that we're starting to, to see emerging. And what is the research scape around this condition? Are there kind of new advances that are coming out, new treatments as we begin to understand more about it? I think we've seen the dramatic effect of the, the kind of the first generation of enzyme replacement therapy for this disorder, but we know that that is not perfect. It doesn't cure the disorder. It changes it into a long-term chronic condition. But as we said, it's suboptimal in terms of its um, outcome. So there are different um, approaches to try and improve that long-term outcome. Um, There's some work around trying to optimize the response to that treatment in terms of some patients have an immunological response to the current treatment. The body starts generating antibodies against the treatment. Um, And so for uh, many of the children, we would be using some form of immunomodulation around the treatment to try and help improve the outcome and reduce that antibody response. We're also, we've been in working on developing second generation forms of the enzyme replacement therapy. So targeting to get it taken up better into the muscle cells has been an ongoing piece of work. And and we've just starting to have the, if you like, the second generation of enzyme replacement therapies that have come through clinical trial. And we're just starting to use those in clinical practice where they're a better version of the the enzyme. 
There's also a lot of work trying to optimize the doses of the treatment that we're using to make sure we're giving optimal doses. Um, and then I guess the next step on is thinking, are there other alternative approaches to treatment? And certainly in the sphere of gene therapies, that is also an area that's being explored for this, this disorder. So effectively, if you can give the patient a, a working copy of the gene, which then means they can produce their own enzyme, either directly in the muscles or targeting the liver to be producing the enzyme that's secreted around the body. And um, that is another treatment approach. Now that's still very much in early phase of preclinical studies at the moment, but that I think is where the, the future is going to be going. It's definitely something to keep an eye on. Mm. So can we round up with some quick fire questions? So firstly, Pompey is quite a specialist disease, but what would you like the general paediatrician to know about it? Yes, I think for a general paediatrician, it's important to be aware of this condition so that if you are uh, confronted with a child who could have a diagnosis of Pompey, that it's in your differential diagnosis. So particularly floppy infant with um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, think Pompey. Um, or an older child who's presented with um, a myopathy that you don't understand or a high CK or a, even a child who's got an incidental high ALT. Just think about Pompe disease in the differential and be aware that we can test for it very easily with that blood spot test. And are there any useful resources that you would recommend? Yeah, so there are some um, good information sources out there. Um, we work quite closely with some of the patient support groups um, and um, they provide some really useful information that's targeted really for families and, and patients, but is also, I think, helpful for healthcare professionals as well. Um, one of those groups that we work with is the Association for Glycogen Storage Diseases um, in the UK. They have a very good website, agsd.org.uk, where there is information about all of the different glycogen storage diseases, but in particular, there's a, a good page on Pompeii disease and some good information that's there, which is helpful, I think, for, for professionals. It's also somewhere we would, we would signpost our, our families to so that they can get some support. So that's a useful resource to, to access. Yeah, and I'll make sure that's linked down below. And lastly, what are your three takeaway learning points? So I think, think about rare diseases in, in the context of a differential diagnosis. And as we've said already, floppy infant plus hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Think about Pompe disease. I think planning, as we've seen, this is a really good example where you need that MDT approach to care, I think is really important. And I think it's also an example of where we're seeing developments in, in new and exciting treatments. And so it's a really good model for understanding how, how, yeah, how a rare disease can be addressed and, and treated with, with novel therapies. James, thank you so much for a really succinct and accessible overview of quite a specialist condition. I always enjoy having these conversations with you because I really do think that you lay things out in such um, an accessible and easy to understand way. So thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Practicing Pediatrics. We would love to get your feedback on the podcast and any ideas you may have for future episodes. You can find a link to the feedback page in the episode description or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. You'll also find a list of resources and further reading in the description. If you want to find out more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also visit our website, 
at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. You can visit the Gosh Den via our website to see what courses we have on offer. We have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon, so make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoy this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.